Welcome to The Sunny Side, the podcast that makes solar energy relatable, accessible, and attainable. Join us as we journey behind the scenes with women taking amazing strides in all parts of the solar industry. I'm your host, Sharon Lee, and thank you for joining us today. to the sunny side. I am your host, Sharon Lee with Velo Solar, and I am so excited about my guest today. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time in Sharon's corner so we can get right to her, although it does relate what I have been up to. So you know, we will be talking about the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act today. And so yesterday, I was in Piedmont Park with Senator Ossoff's team as they were doing a media event to rah-rah the fact that this is not introduced legislation. This is actually passed law. So that was a great event. And Jeanette Gare with um, Environment Georgia gave some remarks. Scott with QCell announced some information about their expansion, which is going to turn into 500 additional jobs. And we'll get into some of that piece of this legislation as well. And Senator Offsaf did a fantastic job of fielding questions and We were just able to celebrate together. So that was a fun event. And then I came straight down to Savannah. So I am recording here today from my hotel room in Savannah. I'm going to be going to a Chamber of Commerce event. And there's been a great little buzz about the passing of this law. And it's just fantastic. I think that people feel like this is within their reach. And so they're really wanting to find out more details. So that's going to be what this is about today. But before we get into it, let me introduce my guest, Carla Loeb. She is the head of government affairs for Arcadia. So everybody say hi to Carla. Hi. (laughs) Welcome, Carla. So before we get too much into the weeds about what you all have been doing in DC, tell me a little bit about your background. How did you get here? A long and winding story. So As Sharon mentioned, I'm with Arcadia. Arcadia is a technology firm. We focus on enabling and deploying clean technologies to help undo the bad things that have happened for generations and generations. I am personally originally from New Orleans, born and raised in uptown New Orleans, a block off the streetcar line, and went to University of Texas. My dad's a financial... A strong UT. So I, I had to get that little dig in there. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Sharon believes this is the wrong UT. I'll just say, when people say, where did you go? I say, Texas. And they're like, which one? I was like, there's only one Texas. <laughs> I love it. But spent a lot of time in Texas growing up. But generationally, my family has been in Louisiana for a super, super long time. And so in some way, shape or form, my background story and youth was spent around the oil and gas industry in a meaningful way. The majority of fossil fuels is processed in the state of Louisiana, and most policy has been dictated from Louisiana to D.C. for more than 100 years. So it's interesting to be in D.C. now doing it in the reverse capacity. Went to Texas, ultimately got recruited to develop utility-scale wind and solar facilities in Texas and the middle portion of the United States. And I was kind of lost. I just thought that I was going to be a lawyer or something along those lines. I was a government and history major and wanted to help people and figure that out. I thought I was going to go into constitutional law. So, you know, not really high yielding moneymaker, et cetera, but more about fighting the fight and doing good work for good people to make sure that we are preserving the values that our democracy was founded on. Instead, I got recruited (laughs) 
to be essentially a wildcatter for wind <laughs> and solar and called myself a landman. And I ended up in West Texas developing my first wind facility and was talking to the land manager for the Scottish Rite Hospital in Texas. His name was Gary Neese. And Gary was explaining that they had tens of thousands of acres under management, and it was his responsibility for that property to be as profitable as possible to help support the mission of the Scottish Rite Hospital, which supports children in orthopedics. And he said a word that just resonated with me. And for the first time, I was like, I get it. This is what I want to do. This is what I've been looking for forever. And he was like, it's my job to be a steward of this land. And it just was like this aha moment for me. And I've really carried that with me ever since. And see my job, whether people know it or not, is to be a steward of this cause and steward of preserving and, and helping to sustain what's out there. I think it's the, the quintessential definition of conservationist. It's that we got to take care of what we have so that we continue to have it. And again, being from South Louisiana, I mean, that includes crawfish, it includes seasonal tomatoes, it includes soft shell crabs and oysters and all of these things that I love and that are in constant threat of being, you know, just wiped off the planet. So it is personal. <laughs> it is my career, but it is also my passion because it helps me to help everyone. Well, and you had said it really well when we talked before that you had said that this is a way to thread and connect. It connects the past and present, the old and the new. And so, you know, you were not seeing yourself necessarily in this light as you took that. And then it, you had the aha moment. And I, I think that's fantastic. So. Yep. No, I mean, again, my dad worked at One Shell Square as a kid. <laughs> so, I mean, Shell, Shell Oil. And while he wasn't in the oil business, he certainly was adjacent in many different capacities and ways. And generationally, my family has been adjacent to it in many different capacities. And when I was developing that wind farm out in West Texas, it ultimately, I, I named it the Santa Rita Project. And it was in the exact location where the original Santa Rita well was drilled in Big Lake, Texas, which is in Reagan County in Uber West, Texas. And it actually was the oil well that ultimately ended up sustaining the University of Texas's endowment for like a generation. So, you know, it was very symbolic to have the original well's name ultimately be the wind project's name in that same place. It was, you know, bringing the past into the present. Mm -hmm. And then you went from Texas directly to D.C., is that correct? No, I moved back to New Orleans. I got recruited after my time at the Wind Energy Company, and I was with them for almost five years. I moved back to Louisiana to work for a solar and energy efficiency company that focused on servicing low and moderate income households. And again, like another aha moment, you know, wanting to help people, wanting to make things better, make things more equitable. It's, you know, everybody should have access to clean energy. It shouldn't be exclusively the Tesla driving folks. And so I went on a bit of a campaign, not just in Louisiana, but nationally and was a guest at the White House several times, helped provide feedback on the clean power plan, which at the time was the federal policy that folks were trying to develop to make sure that there was a clean energy transition. I worked in New York. I worked in Connecticut and really advocated for equitable access and 
a lot of the work that I did established policies that are still thriving today. I mean, it was a precursor to the Clean Energy Fund, which is in New York, which is a multi-billion dollar effort to transition the entire state to clean energy with huge allocations of resources to lower income households. It included a partnership with the Connecticut Green Bank that resulted in the state being the first one in the country to have equity parity. And so what that means is they're basically an equal number of low income households having access to clean energy as there are higher income households. And it was the first state to achieve it. And it was through the partnership that I helped to establish. So super proud of the work that I've gotten to do and continue to do. And advocacy for energy equity continues to be a passion project and certainly a professional policy position that I tend to thread in in every component, whether that was through the Inflation Reduction Act or policies that I helped to work on in Virginia. It's been with me always. Well, so, and and this is probably jumping forward, but can you talk a little bit about your role on the SIA board? And I guess we should say what SIA is before getting into that. So I can, I'll just, before we hop to that, I'll just say from Louisiana, I actually joined a company that was based in Virginia, but I moved to DC. That's how I got to DC was the company wanted me to move to Charlottesville, Virginia. And I said, hard pass. It's a lovely town, but I'd rather be in the center of it. I knew that I could fundamentally help more people from D.C. in Louisiana and Texas and everywhere than I could from Virginia. And so it was an active decision. When people asked me if I moved to D.C. for my job, I said, no, I'm moving for my career. And it was a super intentional decision for me. I concurrently, when I made that move, got elected to the SIA board of directors. And so I sit on the Solar Energy Industry Association Board of Directors, which is the national trade association that represents the entire solar industry and particularly competitive providers in the solar industry. And so I'm now in my fifth year on the board. So I've gotten elected three times now, and I have also been elected As a board member, most of the board seats are paid for memberships. I've been elected by all of my peers to serve on the executive committee. And then I also was elected to be the state policy chair for the entire association. So covering all of state policies and budgets for the organization. And I'm the elected member, how I ended up on the board in the first place of the distributed generation division. So that covers residential solar, commercial solar and community solar. So your state policy director position, is that why you were a part of Georgia's IRP testimony or? So I actually started doing some work in Georgia. My company, Arcadia, is very interested in diversifying and particularly to more challenging markets. As somebody who has done a lot of work in super, I would say, hostile environments to distributed generation, It's just something that I know how to do. Mm -hmm. I have been successful. I continue to be successful. And community solar should be a right, not a privilege, because it actually creates equitable access for everyone to clean energy. And so that was kind of the impetus for me getting involved. And so I participated behind the scenes and provided feedback on the Georgia IRP and several other dockets, as well as some legislative campaigns. And so, yeah, that's how I have made my appearance in Georgia. 
<laughs> nice. Now, are you following the rate case that will go? I have been as a member of the board of CI, I get to participate in regional committees. And then also Arcadia, on top of being a member of SIA, we're also a member of Georgia SIA. And so I actually have been participating in the Georgia SIA working group, as well as the national SIA working group to provide feedback. And so IRP, as well as, as the rate case, and we'll continue to provide input as needed. But I just got really busy. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so... Weeks ago, I don't know if you heard this, this small piece of legislation just passed called the Inflation Reduction Act. Yes, very exciting. And you know, there's a number of different components to it. And I know you can speak to a lot of different components of it, but you know, we had talked before about maybe focusing this conversation to like you know, what business owners can expect, kind of what is that commercial solar piece to it? And we can go as far as you want to. But anyway, I just thought for this purpose, there's just a whole lot that can kind of focus our conversation. Yeah, I would just start by setting the stage that, you know, one, this is the largest investment in clean energy ever in the history of our country or world, period. So it's $369 billion dollars. And we did it without having an impact on the budget. And what that means is we actually reduced spending over the next 10 years to help pay for this initiative. So it is not a tax increase. It actually is going to be a reduction on overall the deficit for the United States. And so it is going to generate substantial and significant savings, particularly on the healthcare side of our budget in the United States because it's going to enable bulk purchasing and negotiation power on drugs for Medicare and Medicaid patients. And why that's important is that historically there were only 10 drugs that were bulk negotiated. And so this is going to be able to control prices that the federal government is having to pay for these drugs for people. It's also going to limit the costs for households to a maximum of $2,000 for our elderly, which is, I just think, phenomenal. So while I operate in the climate space, you know, and, and clean tech space, I really operate in the clean tech space. I don't talk about climate all that often. These are really critical things that are ultimately going to save us a lot of money. You know, the average extreme weather event right now is costing billions of dollars every time they happen. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if we do things to mitigate that, like we're going to save money. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's just a fact. So all that being said, the Inflation Reduction Act really touches on so many components of the clean tech space. So it is electric vehicle incentives, and those could be for commercial or industrial purposes. So if you have a business and you are, you know, a tractor or a heavy duty truck or whatever else, there is a $40,000 tax credit available that you can leverage that because it's a commercial vehicle and tied to a business does not have a salary requirement. The other tax incentives associated with electric vehicles are all tied to salary. And so they're salary limitations. And so they start at about $4,500 for a tax credit for a used vehicle and go up to $7,500 for a used vehicle. There are, I think for the solar industry, I mean, the biggest things I would point to are the tax provisions as it relates to the investment tax credit, production tax credit, the manufacturing tax credits, 
the innumerable adders that can be stacked on top of the base investment tax credits, the storage tax credit. <laughs> you well, know. the longevity, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but the, the longevity of all of this. So that is definitely something that I'd like for you to 10 years. So mm-hmm. I mean, these policies are going to affect and they will be in place for 10 years. There's some exceptions mm-hmm. on some grant funding or allocation fundings to the Department of Energy that need to be deployed by certain timeframes. But for the most part, particularly on the ITC and the PTC and the related adders associated with it, they're all 10-year tax credits. And that's the furthest we can go out. It is by far the longest runway we've ever had on a tax credit, whether you're talking about residential households or businesses, and really going to create a massive amount of certainty to embolden and give confidence to the capital markets that these investments are here. They're going to be around. They're not going to be subject to recapture. It's not going to be the ebbs and flows of whatever's happening. And so it's a $369 billion bill, right? But like that has trickle down effects in an exponential capacity on what that's going to do for jobs, what that is going to do for economic development in communities, particularly rural communities. And I haven't even touched on the USDA provisions, which is increasing the REAP grants, which help to support the rural energy grant program. And so it's exciting. (laughs) There's also more money allocated to the Department of Energy Loan Program Office. And so right now, the Department of Energy Loan Program Office, which is headed up by Jigger Shaw, former CEO and founder of Sun Edison, who created the first PPA for solar and then established Generate Capital, which is one of the largest investors in clean technology in the country, has $500 billion to invest in clean technology, the loan program office. And so their loans, they have to be paid back. You know, it's legit, but there are dollars available to invest in creative solutions. He jokes that, and it's not a joke. I mean, he has to spend $200 million a day to spend all of the money while he's in office. So This is an incredible opportunity. They've made a ton of announcements. He is bullish on virtual power plants and the benefits that distributed generation coupled with other technologies like storage and electric vehicles, et cetera, are going to provide to our grid for resiliency and in the face of extreme weather events. I mean, we watched what happened in Uri in Texas, and it just, you know, crippled the state and almost broke the grid. We saw what happened at Ida in Louisiana. Obviously, I'm touching on two states that are near and dear to my heart, where people were without power for over a month. You know, post-Katrina, which was the largest hurricane that had ever hit South Louisiana, I mean, there were people that had power after a month. And we're talking Ida, which was not even that bad of a storm, and people were without power for over a month. And Entergy Louisiana announced, I want to say in July, that that should be the new norm, that people should have the expectation if a storm hits again, that they're going to be without power for a month, which I think is unacceptable. I mean, these folks were granted a monopoly to deliver reliable service at the lowest cost. That's not an acceptable answer. So you better figure out something else. And I think distributed generation, I mean, going back to the segment of the industry that I work in most passionately is the solution. Like we need to deploy as much 
distributed generation as possible and distributed energy resources, mm -hmm. which include, you know, resi solar, community solar, you have electric vehicles, storage at your house, that could be a heat pump. There were huge credits associated with heat pumps included in the Inflation Reduction Act, which I like to call IRA. I'm not really into calling it the IRA because we already had that in our history and it didn't look so good on anybody. So I'm going to go for the Jewish grandfather and call it IRA. I love it. <laughs> I think you've coined that term. I think that's perfect. I was going to ask you, with some of these tax credits, they are available immediately, right? Yes. The, so some of them are not, though. Yeah, or maybe right. It depends on the credit. Okay. So 25D, which is the residential solar tax credit that individuals can take, provided they have the tax liability is retroactive back to January 1 of 2022. So if you installed your solar this year, if you've already installed it, if it was after January 1 of 2022, you are eligible for a 30% tax credit because the ITC for 25D was increased in its totality back up to 30%. And that will be a 10-year runway on that. Section 48, which is the tax credit that businesses utilize. And so by businesses, I mean, that could be a residential solar company like Sunrun or Sonova, because they actually do contracts. They own the systems ultimately, and then have contracts for the people to utilize the energy, but they leverage Section 48. And so they leverage that commercial entities leverage Section 48, and utility scale folks leverage Section 48. So Section 48 is a little bit wonkier. There are a bunch of different stipulations. A lot of them are tied to size. And when I say this is for the ITC, there's also a Section 48 PTC for wind and solar. But the Section 48 ITC, the provision is changing the structure of the credit to be tied to a variety of labor provisions. So the credit starts at 6%. And if you meet labor prevailing wage requirements, as well as apprenticeship program requirements, you can get up to 30%. There are also adders that can be leveraged. So there is a 20% adder. If your projects that are below five megawatts, so think commercial or community solar, mm -hmm. if more than 50% of the capacity services a low-income community, meaning you could get a 70% tax credit if 50% of the financial benefits of your project below five megawatts services a low-income community, which has been defined as 200% of federal poverty level or 80% of state median income. How that is going to be interpreted by the IRS and how we're going to make things eligible will be determined through implementation, which we have six months for that, 180 days for implementation from bill signing. And bill signing was last Tuesday. So that is going to be a pretty intense process with Treasury. They've been massively understaffed for a really long time. We are actually just like reconciling their staffing issues, IRS and Treasury, through this legislation. There have been a lot of talking points about how the IRS is coming after people with guns. No, they're just going to actually be staffed at a reasonable level for the first time in decades. 
for the number of people <laughs> that we have in the United States. So it's going to take a lot of implementation and collaboration with folks at Treasury as well as SIA and some of the other trade associations. I will just give a personal plug for SIA. They are the trade association. And by the, I mean, in talking to staffers that worked on this tirelessly, where, I mean, let me say first and foremost, thank you to all the staffers in Congress and the senators and the representatives who worked tirelessly on this for two years. This did not happen in two weeks. I worked on negotiations as far back as 18 months ago. Other people went so far back as two years. I mean, we've worked on these issues in some form or capacity for decades, but like the culmination of this piece of legislation really has been a multi-year effort and staff and our electeds really delivered on it. And I would just say that it is also the ultimate representation of what a piece of legislation should look like because it was a compromise. This was not just a big swath handout the industry, meaning the clean energy industry. So whether that's electric vehicles, solar, wind, offshore wind, energy efficiency, you name it, got stuff. You know who else got a ton? Utility companies. You know who else got a ton? Oil and gas companies. You know who else got a ton? West Virginia, not surprising. So, I mean, like it was the ultimate compromise because everybody got something. And I think it's the mark of real collaboration and real policymaking when no one side or part wins, but everybody wins. And I can tell you who is ultimately going to win. It's the American people and the American people, not just in the cities, but the people in the rural communities, because the amount of money that is about to be injected in our rural communities is enormous there is going to be a revitalization like we have not seen in my lifetime. It's amazing that I think that is the buzz that I am hearing just from the average Joe hearing that, you know, this is happening. It's not just another something that went through Washington. I mean, people actually feel like it's accessible to them and it is. And so I think that the more that we can talk about this and get information, that was the other thing is we were talking about SIA being such a fantastic information resource because as the implementation process is happening over the next few months, they are going to be putting out things like maps and other resources. The summary that they came out with immediately after this passage was so thorough and helpful. I mean, I think that was a great start, but did you want to talk a little bit more about Yeah, about the resources that are available? So, Mm -hmm. you know, for as long as I can remember, I have heard from local energy folks, you know, what has my National Trade Association ever done for me? And I'm just going to say my standard answer going forward, $369 billion. What have you done for it? And my point to this is, a fraction of all of the energy businesses in the United States are members of SIA, a fraction of them. The resources, the time, the energy that it is going to take and that we're going to need to be able to properly implement this legislation and win the win and make sure that it does exactly what it was intended to do, which is to reach 
every nook, cranny, and crevice of this country and get clean energy and clean technologies into it, we're going to need more resources. Like this is a lot of money and it is a huge responsibility and it's going to take a lot of work. So you mentioned the summary that SIA put together. There's multiple summaries. There's the summary that SIA put together for the average layperson that they could pick up. There's the SIA summary that they put together for members, which is one is seven pages. The other one is 25 pages. So you would imagine that the 25 page one has a little bit more detail. SIA is working on a map that is going to have information about former energy communities, which is one of the big provisions is for utility scale and commercial and community solar development and transitioning communities, communities that used to be energy communities that were trying to reinvest in those same areas to bring these communities back to life. There is a map that is being developed that you'll be able to interactive map Well, you'll be able to click on it and find out where every single energy community is in the country so that you can start developing your projects. There's also a map of every single project above one megawatt that is in the queue that is already interconnected. And we're just developing resource upon resource. I mentioned these labor provisions that are attached to Section 48 for commercial projects and utility scale projects. Those are not going to be super easy. The prevailing wage is going to be relatively straightforward. Those numbers are published. Everybody will be able to access them. But the apprenticeship program is going to be a massive amount of implementation, and you're going to need to be able to document it or you're going to be subject to recapture, so recapture of that tax credit that you're, you're leveraging to construct and develop your project. And so you need a trusted source and ally, and I'm going to tell you it's going to be SIA. We already have people that have been hired. We hired them two years ago to start working on this. This isn't something that we just started today. You know, we've been planning, we've been thinking, we negotiated out the language. We sat in a room with, you know, IBEW and other labor groups and sorted these details out. And it's, again, it's not going to be easy, but we can do it, but you need help. Like there are very few companies that are going to be sophisticated enough and have the time, energy or resources either financially or figuratively to be able to do this on their own. And so if there ever was a time to become a member, it is now because you need a shepherd and SIA is it and will be the leading voice in the negotiations, whether it's Department of Energy, whether it's Treasury, whether it's the Environmental Protection Agency, because all of those agencies are touched by this legislation. And so, you know, I would encourage you to join. If you have questions, I'm happy to answer them. The entry level membership is $750. It goes up from there. And so it's reasonable if you're a mom and pop shop or if you're a more sophisticated agency or group. And also have your voice heard about what you need. We've got RE Plus coming up in September. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be talking on a panel. I have a board meeting for SIA. There's going to be a lot of incredible content. I mean, it's going to be a huge celebration, but I also, you know, it's an opportunity for you to have FaceTime with people who are the experts, who know what's going on, who can help you help your business be more profitable and sustainable. We were talking about that before from the standpoint of mentorship, but, you know, with everything that you have accomplished just across your career, but then also what you do for SIA, it's amazing. You know, you've talked about your 
you know, not having a specific formal program, but things like that being so accessible at shows like that, that he is putting yeah. on is just phenomenal. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? And yeah, I mean, you know, mentorship for me is about empowering people in the community who take an interest, who care and who ask questions. You know, I have not participated in a formal mentorship program, either as a receiver or as a giver. I will say I have incredible mentors who happen to also be my friends like Abby Hopper. I also, you know, have been a mentor to other people, you know, not in a formal capacity again, but just as a, you know, ally, helpful hand resource when people needed that. And, you know, the first person that comes to mind is Chase Counts. He does a lot of policy for community housing partners, which focuses on low income energy efficiency programs in Virginia. But, you know, my door's open, my phone line's open, and whether it's folks at Arcadia who I've worked with or people at previous companies or just people who I've met along the way, I mean, I feel like in some ways I was just kind of picked out of a hat and people gave me opportunities and I just kept showing up. And I would just encourage everybody, if you're looking for a way to get involved, 99.9% is just showing up. And I'm sure you've all heard it, but if I'm not a testament to it, then I don't know what is. I mean, my dad jokes all the time. He's like, Washington, D.C. is totally bureaucratic, whatever else. You can't have access to anything. This is absurd. And I was like, "Um, if it were so absurd, why have I been to the White House like a dozen times? Like meeting with congressional members like on the regular. If it was so inaccessible, why do I, who has no entitlement to any of this, get to be in the room. And, you know, I think, again, it goes back to, I just kept showing up and just kept asking questions and kind of pushing for that. And so if you want to come and ask me questions, you always can. And if you need help and support, whether it's pointing you in directions or providing feedback on your career paths, I mean, a guy that I knew in New Orleans wanted to have cocktails with me while I was living there. And he was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. He had worked on the city council and couldn't figure out his next path. He ended up having a job at Uber, being the head of policy for the Southeast and whatever else. Did I do that? Absolutely not. But did we talk about what the opportunities were and how and where he could end up? So I remember those stories and will continue to remember it. I mean, it's a very small industry. And so my advice is show up, be authentic, which is a, a word people are somewhat overusing. But if anybody that's met me knows, there is no version of Carla but Carla. And so I am the definition of authentic. And, you know, work hard. Like, that's it. So tell us how, if someone does want to reach you, how they can connect with you. Yep. Email is probably the easiest. So it's just Carla. It's Carla with a K dot Loeb, as in Lisa Loeb. And for you younger folks, it's L, O is an Oscar, E is an Echo, B is in Bravo. So Carla.lobe at Arcadia.com. And would be happy to hear from you, happy to connect you with the right people if you have a question and I can't answer it. And, you know, just really appreciate the time to come on here, Sharon. And I didn't get to bring this up before, but as we close out, so Sharon's name is Sharon Lee. Well, my mom's name is Sharon Dully. So seeing it on a screen for a few minutes just kind of makes me giggle because, you know, it's my mom's name. Well, and I love the fact that when you told me that story, I said, well, my middle initial is D. So technically, I'm Sharon Delee as well. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs>
I think that is fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a wealth of information and I know more things are going to be unfolding. Yes. And I mean, I would love to come back and talk to you guys about specific provisions and what's happening on the implementation and whatever else. I mean, again, like this is a work in progress, you know, getting it passed was the Herculean effort. I don't know what could be more than that. I mean, climbing Mount Everest is now what we're about to do. It's a slow, treacherous trek uphill the whole time, and it's going to be a lot of work. And so we've got a lot of work to do to make sure that we get the implementation of this legislation correct. Well, we're going to put that time in and make it great. I'm so excited about that. And I look forward to seeing you at RE Plus, and we'll connect there and see where the conversation goes. Sounds wonderful. Thanks so much, Sharon, for having me on. Take care. Good luck to Velo in the near term. Sounds good. Thanks for listening to the Sunnyside Podcast. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star review. You can also email questions, suggestions, and compliments to Sharon at velosolar.com. The Sunnyside is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company and executive produced by Sharon Lee. Thank you.